Welcome to the Theology Mom Podcast, hosted by theologian Krista Bontrager. Each week, Krista provides practical teaching to help everyday Christians gain a deeper understanding of their faith. And now, here's Krista. Hello, family. I'm really excited to share this teaching with you today. You know, in the wake of the social unrest of 2020, many churches wrestled with how they might respond to issues of justice and injustice, helping the marginalized in a tangible way. And, you know, I commend the desires of these churches that felt called to um, help others to reach out to the less fortunate. These are um, commendable ideals, noble ideas. Such efforts are often an extension of the church's love and concern for their neighbors. And I think that there's a, a lot to commend there with that. That said, uh, my ministry partner, uh, Monique Dusan, who is the co-founder with myself at the Center for Biblical Unity, we've noticed that many pastors who reach out to us, that we spend time on Zoom with, and they, they often have a sense of, you know, I really want to do something to, to reach out and help others, but they're unsure about what tangible steps are needed to move forward with starting what I'm going to call a justice ministry. And many of their ideas are often very, what I might describe as being narrow in scope. Um, they usually focus on uh, things like launching a backpack program for low-income kids or foster kids, starting a food pantry or neighborhood cleanup campaigns, this sort of a thing. These are the, the most frequent ideas that we hear. And all of those services can certainly have their place. I don't in any way want to denigrate those services or those ideas. But what I would like to do is help churches have some maybe some sanctified imagination, um, a little bit more creativity to think beyond these standard, what I'm going to call helps ministries or justice ministries, and consider the bigger picture of what's happening in their particular community before launching into something new. My hope in this podcast is to empower churches to begin to develop approaches that will bring lasting transformation through the power of the gospel. And so to do this, I'm going to offer five critical questions for leaders, leadership teams, elder teams, pastoral teams to consider when developing a strategy to engage in a justice ministry or community outreach. So let's get into this. Number one, first question, what is the leadership's vision? The church's leadership. So again, for example, I'm talking about the elder team or the pastoral team. 
must be clear about their overall ministry goal. What does the church specifically want to focus on in reaching the surrounding community? How are they going to meet the spiritual needs of the community in particular? How are they going to bring the gospel to that community? Many of our efforts these days, I see, are on, focused on developing what I would call a social program that is focused um, primarily on meeting physical needs. So the, th the thing the church is going to have to get clear on is, are we going to uh, first put a priority on meeting spiritual needs in our outreach, or are we going to put a priority and a first focus on meeting physical needs, or are we going to try to do both? Because having a clear answer to these questions will provide a solid foundation for everything else that follows. You, you have to be clear about your goal and your vision. In my opinion, churches should place a priority on gospel-focused outreach. I think that that should be first meeting the spiritual needs of the community. Uh, I, I'm reminded of the words of Jesus. I think it cuts right to the heart of the matter. In Matthew chapter 16, he says this, then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be? This is the critical key right here is what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the son of man is going to come in his father's glory with angels. And then he will reward each person according to what they have done. So this, this passage to me calls my attention on, if I'm looking at the hierarchy of priorities, spiritual needs have to come first. That, that's not to say that meeting physical needs is not important, that, that it's not relevant. Again, programs such as yearly backpack programs for foster care children, trash cleanup at the local park, food boxes during the holidays, all of those things can have their place. And in fact, we see this, this injunction in, in principle, both by example and by direct command in scripture. It says, for example, in Acts chapter two, we see it by example. All the believers were together, had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. There was a, there was a nature and an, an atmosphere and a culture of voluntary sharing in the early church. But we also see this command by, you know, a direct uh, injunction in 1 John chapter 3, verse 17, it says, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? The way that we, that we manifest that God lives in us is that we are able to see the, the, the material needs of those in our local church body. And then we step up, we step up to help them if we are able. 
And again, the focus in these scriptures is that Christians were known for their voluntary caring for one another. Now, um, it, it probably goes without saying, but at, 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 in this day and age and the rise of socialism, I feel compelled to make this clarifying statement that it is a step too far to say that these scriptures can legitimately be leveraged to, to provide biblical warrant for compulsive participation in government social programs. It's not what we're talking about here. So we are talking about voluntary caring for one another, specifically by helping to meet the physical needs of others. Now, while helping to meet the basic needs of brothers and sisters in, in the local church is good, um, church leadership must also be very clear about something. And that is that humanitarian efforts should never be conflated with genuine gospel preaching, uh, nor should they be a substitute for biblically informed means to improve distressed communities. Again, in the hierarchy of priorities, we must place a high value on robust gospel ministry accompanied with discipleship, teaching people to obey all of Jesus's commands. A person's greatest need is their spiritual need for the cross. That's where the curses of sin are broken and new possibilities for that person become available. So gospel-centered ministry uh, has to be, in my opinion, at the foundation. Again, that's not to negate physical needs. It's not to ignore the physical needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ, but it is rather to establish a hierarchy of priorities. Okay, number two, the second question that I think church leadership should ask before launching a justice-oriented or humanitarian-oriented um, ministry is this. Is the outreach program built on a robust biblical framework? Now, this, this step might seem basic and almost go without saying, but in our experience, Monique and I have seen that this is the step that is usually neglected. Um, one of the first questions we ask a leader when we get on a call with them that wants to have a conversation with us about starting a ministry is we ask them, well, what is the biblical warrant for this ministry? If the response is kind of a broad, general response, that's just kind of sounds like, well, it's an expression for love for our neighbor or um, the Bible says that we should help widows and orphans. That's a signal to me that this leader and this leadership team still has a lot of biblical work to do. They, they got a lot of Bible study ahead of them. These answers of love for neighbor and helping widows and orphans are not adequate. This will not be enough to help shape a robust framework executing a justice ministry that includes gospel ministry, physical needs, and discipleship. Here's, here's an example. 
Um, I think that noticing our neighbor's lack of basic needs can be the start of an outreach effort, but it must also be more than that. Programs that are designed to help others cannot be just merely motivated by good intentions. For example, a, a biblical vision for quote unquote helping the poor ought to include a long-term strategy of empowering the recipients of the ministry to provide for their own family's needs as well. Um, it can't just be constant temporary handouts. There needs to include a long-term strategy of empowering those people to sustain their own family's needs. But how do we know this? We know this because we've completed step number two, which is providing a robust biblical framework. For example, in Exodus chapter 23, it says, for six years, you are to sow your fields and harvest the crops. But during the seventh year, let the land lie unplowed and unused. Then the poor among your people may get food from it and wild animals may eat what is left. Do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. So this was a provision that God built into his law for his people. Now, again, I'm not talking about the world. I'm not talking about the what the world must do. I'm talking about what God's people must do and take leadership in. That um, the principle here is that um, those who have businesses, those who have the wealth of fields, fields and property would have represented the ability to sustain themselves. There's an injunction here of sharing. There's an injunction of allowing your neighbor to get basic needs met. Um, and that you are part of spearheading that uh, it, for your neighbor. When you reap the harvest of your land uh, in Leviticus 19, it says this, it kind of repeats it. It says, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord, your God. So what we have here in ancient Israel is landowners who would have represented, you know, the modern day equivalent of maybe business owners, people who um, have the ability to build wealth for themselves and to provide jobs for others. What their injunction was, was to make a way for the poor to come and harvest still do the work, um, there was a, just a basic pathway for, for minimal provisions for the poor. But, but the work was still re required. Even though the poor man didn't own the land, he hadn't tilled the ground, he hadn't sown the seed, he hadn't hired the harvesters, but he still had to put in some amount of effort. This was what we might call uh, giving somebody a job, giving them a chance in our business, okay? Why did he do these things? Because work 
is part of our inherent purpose as human beings. This is how we are designed. If we were to go back Genesis 1, Genesis 2, we would see that God commissions Adam from the beginning to work the ground. Adam, in his case, he is to be a farmer. And what we learn from this is the general principle of work and that laziness is a sin. The Bible has quite a lot to say, especially in the Proverbs, about laziness. The Apostle Paul talks about doing something profitable, doing something constructive with your hands. So the idea here is that those who are, you know, of, of a, a situation where they can hire someone else, they ought to be willing to give the poor a chance to work. It's not necessarily about handouts. It's about opportunity to get people's basic needs met. But we don't know this unless we've engaged in a robust Bible study. If all we have as our framework for humanitarianism is I'm going to love my neighbor or I'm going to help widows and orphans, that is not an adequate framework to really dig into the details of God's word of what the principles are of how God wants us to love our neighbor, particularly our neighbor who's poor and doesn't have land and can't sustain themselves. This means that, that efforts to help the poor ought not to be an invitation for able-bodied people to violate God's design. Rather, we should have the goal to include education about biblical principles of work, financial management, all of which leads to self-sufficiency. Over and over again, we see this in God's law, that the, I, that the goal to get the person to is what, and this is why land coming back to the original family of origin was so important in the year of Jubilee. It's, it, it's, it's a self-sufficiency program. It's a program that makes sure that every family has land for which they can support themselves. And if something happens to that land through famine, through the death in the family, that the land is no longer able to be worked and they lose the land through debt or they have to sell it off, there's a possibility that after 70 years, the land can come back to the family. Why? For self-sufficiency. So that family, the next generation can be self-sufficient. So how do we know these things? Again, we know these things because we have engaged in rigorous Bible study. This is how we know God's plan to help the poor. It's not just a vague, general idea of helping the poor. There's standards, there's principles, there's frameworks. So instead of merely handing out free food, which is the common thought today of this is how I help the poor, it would seem that a more biblically consistent idea is to create a work for food program where recipients are expected to contribute labor to making a food pantry work, such as cleaning the bathrooms or unloading freight or stacking boxes or organizing the food, hand, helping with the handout of the food, doing tangible things to contribute to the effort. The program could also require food recipients to 
take job assistance classes or learn resume writing skills or take budgeting classes, all with a potential end goal of weaning themselves off the program. Again, the goal is self-sufficiency, not dependency. All too often, though, I think because churches don't, they neglect this step of Bible study, they end up mirroring the culture's values by creating dependency. This is what our government does so well with the system of welfare. It just creates multi-generational dependency. Rather, if churches took the time to really dig into scripture and start operating and building their programs according to biblical principles, they would be able to implement a better vision for community change than what the world has to offer. Okay, number three. This is the third question I would love churches, church leadership to ask before starting a justice ministry. Have you assessed the actual needs of the community? One of the most common mistakes that Monique and I see is that a church will launch the kind of ministry that the leadership is excited about instead of first slowing down and taking an assessment of the actual needs of the community. Sometimes what seems to happen is that someone in the leadership gets really excited about a vision and then everyone gets, gets behind it and they get going, but they don't stop to really do the data collection to see if that's meeting an actual need. Sometimes it's easy for a church just to kind of look around the neighborhood see potential opportunities for outreach. Sometimes the opportunities are a little more elusive, but the, the visible issues um, are there, but it they might not even be the ones that need to be addressed the most. It, it may be that the visible issues already have enough resources in place that things are there and they're, they're actually being taken care of if people avail themselves of those resources. But there may be issues lingering in hidden places that you might not see on the street in the day-to-day that might be happening behind closed doors. Either way, whether the needs are out in the public or whether they're behind closed doors, it's important to take time to assess what's actually happening in your own backyard before developing a new program. And this is going to require data collection. Now, a good place to start with the data collection is just go to the census.gov website, type in your church's zip code. You will immediately be given a snapshot of, you know, a few miles of a radius around your church. You can begin to probe and investigate what the needs are in your area. So here's just a couple examples to, to help get your thinking going on this. So a good place to start the data collection is by going to the census.gov website. Just type in your church's zip code. You'll immediately be met with a snapshot of you know a few mile radius around your church. And you can begin to investigate what the needs are in your area. So here's a couple of examples just to help get you thinking about this. 
Now, let's say your church has been thinking about starting a food pantry for single parents in your congregation. However, you notice that there's already four food pantries located within a five mile radius of your church. After doing some more data collection, you find that um, what's actually a bigger need is that single parents are looking for opportunities for work. Um, but they can't afford childcare. So maybe there, there's a need that emerges where you might consider gathering volunteers from your church community and starting a low cost uh, volunteer run daycare or after school program so that parents can have the opportunity to work. This would help uh, financially so that um, they might not actually need the services of food pantries. Uh, that could actually help begin to build self-sustainability for them. Or another idea, let's say that your church is located in a very affluent area where the median income is $125,000 a year. Monique and I actually did some ministry once at a, at a church where this was the case. It was a very affluent area. And you might notice that this area, around in your area, that there's a high rate of homes with computers who have high speed internet. So we might wonder then, we might try on the idea, well, I wonder how many of these homes might be impacted by porn addiction or cocaine addiction. Coke addiction tends to run higher in more affluent areas. So maybe this is a need where your church needs to focus. Maybe that's a bigger need than food pantries. So don't fall into the trap of thinking that just because your church is located in a more affluent area that the surrounding community doesn't have real needs. Perhaps their needs are just more hidden inside nice homes. You know, rich people also need the gospel. A, a second step in data collection involves talking to ministries that are already servicing in your area. It's possible that your church actually doesn't need to start something new. It might be better for the leadership team at your church to partner with another local church or parachurch ministry that is already reaching the unreached with the gospel. It might be more efficient to help shore up their efforts of a smaller ministry that's already embedded in the community that you want to service. So again, those are just ideas, but you're going to have to do your due diligence with the data collection. This is such a frequent misstep that we see so many churches do. They don't make decisions based on data. They make decisions based on their emotions and you know their good intentions of what they want to do. Okay, number four, the fourth question that I would love to see uh, churches and ministry teams ask before starting a justice ministry is this. Do you have key leaders in place with the right skill set to oversee the outreach ministry? Now, sometimes, you know, there's just one person, they got a big vision, but they might not have the ability to totally execute the vision. Some people are just big idea people. They're awesome. They have the big ideas, but you have to have people who can implement the big ideas. Um, 
And even if they do have the ability to implement the big idea, it's not generally healthy for a whole project to ride on the shoulders of just one person. This is why it's really vital for church leaders to develop a team with the right skills. It's kind of biblical, 1 Corinthians 12, you know, different people have different gifts. So we want to put together a team of people with different skills, different sets of experience, different sets of spiritual gifts to oversee the development, the launch, and the ongoing execution of this outreach effort. And those might be different people in different phases. There might be one team that does development, one team that does the launch, and one team that really gets seated in place to, to execute it on the long term. If these elements are not in place, it might be better to slow the development phase and wait for the Lord's provision for adequate staffing. Um, now, I, it might be helpful. I have another podcast where I talk to Dr. Gary Miller about tips for hiring uh, biblically faithful leaders. You could check out that podcast. That might have been some help for you to think about some strategies for how to put quality people in place. Most of the conversation is centered around like hiring in schools and Christian ed, but there's also some general principles there that you could glean for how to hire godly leaders in general. But one of the most common pitfalls that Monique and I see in launching a new outreach ministry is the failure to plan for the long haul. It, it may take only money <laughs> and a little bit of effort to, to get an outreach going, but it's going to take people, real people's commitment week after week, year after year to sustain it. When churches do something for a year or two, and Monique has seen this time and time again in her experience working in social service, when a church starts off strong and they do something for a year or two, and then the project folds, because there's just not good infrastructure, there's not good leadership, there's, they didn't plan for the long haul, the community not only loses out on those resources of whatever was being supplied, but a bigger impact almost is that the community gets the message that this was really more about church people, often white church people. They just really wanted to feel good about helping other people. It was more about them feeling good about helping people than it was about a commitment to stand with their neighbors through thick and thin. And that can, can really um, be difficult to people in the community. And it can send a, a, a hard message to them about their worth and their value. As the church looks toward maintaining the long-term health of a new ministry. It will be vital to also think about future leaders. How are we going to inspire volunteers to come catch this vision? So this is going to require something that a lot of churches don't do very well. So you get someone in place who does this well, is to have somebody on board who's a good communicator, someone who can clearly communicate the mission the vision and the values for this new venture. There, I, I've seen this so many times where a pastor stands up on a Sunday, he's really excited about something. He wants to do a bunch of fundraising. 
but he doesn't really have the infrastructure in place. He doesn't have the people in place, but he's really good at the hype. He's a great ideas and hype man. This is damaging. It also damages the, pres- the, the pastor's credibility to the congregation when there's constant fundraising and mentioning of new projects, but there's not clear communication about how they're being implemented, what the year-over-year value is, and what their impact is for lives that are changed. So you, you want to have somebody in place who can communicate these ideas, the mission, vision, and values, including a strong biblical warrant for the ministry. Go back and listen to number two. (laughs) Understanding these pillars will help increase the congregation's buy-in, which is going to be essential for both financial support, fundraising, and that sort of thing, as well as raising up new staff and volunteers. Okay, question number five. This is the fifth question that I wish church leaders would ask before launching a justice ministry. Does the outreach program communicate with the unreached in their native language and cultural context? This is particularly important if your outreach ministry is going to be engaging in cross-cultural ministry. Now, best practices among missionaries have taught us over the years that when we're doing cross-cultural ministry, the ideal is to have someone in leadership who is native to the community that is being serviced. So this might be something to keep in mind as you're recruiting and staffing under number four, under step number four. So for example, if the church wants to develop, let's say a sports ministry as a way to engage the community, our previous church had had a very thriving sports ministry and Many people came into the church who were unchurched and they came in through the sports ministry. And um, this was a means of inviting new people to the church. Um, That effort then would ideally, ideally be spearheaded by somebody who's both knowledgeable about sports. He's a sports insider. He understands sports. He knows things about sports and, and all of that but also has the spiritual gift of evangelism as a big part of him. And he knows how to use, and he has ideas about how to use and position the sports ministry, the activities of the sports ministry as a means of bringing new people into the church. Or let's say your church is looking to launch a ministry to reach the um, LGBT community uh, with the gospel. Well, it would be great if you could recruit a leader who is very mature in the Lord, not a recent convert who meets, you know, the criteria for for a good leader, you know, at minimum, like the leaders for for the deacons um, in scripture that has those those skills and, and, um, and maturity in their life, but also has the spiritual gift of evangelism. And has come out of the LGBT lifestyle, all of those things. That that would be like the ideal mix where you have a cultural insider who came out of that, can speak that language natively, understands how that community thinks, 
but also as a spiritual gift of evangelism and would know, you know, some creative ways of how to reach that community. Being able to speak the language, whether it's knowing sports or being in a particular lifestyle or coming out of a particular lifestyle, or maybe even a particular ethnic background. These can be important factors in success, as is the ability to think creatively about how to use ministry as a bridge to expose new people to the gospel. Again, that's what mission missionaries have taught us is the best practice. But this is not always the case. Even though missionary best practices tell us that evangelism, discipleship are ideally done by cultural natives, or at least spearheaded by cultural natives, God can still work. We would be remiss in not mentioning um, how God moved in situations where there was vast cultural and linguistic boundaries that were crossed by pioneers like William Carey in India or Hudson Taylor in China or David Wilkerson in New York City in the 1960s and 70s or even Elizabeth Elliot in the jungles of Ecuador. What God really needs is our willingness. And if he's in the effort, he, he will make a way. But by keeping all of these principles in mind, I hope that it will inspire your church, your leadership team to, to think about how you can refine your process or that you can build a new ministry uh, that will serve your community and be truly a gospel-driven community-transforming ministry. I hope you found this helpful and I look forward to your feedback about this podcast. Uh, you can feel free to write to me at info at centerforbiblicalunity.com. Thanks so much. God bless. Thanks for joining us. Make sure to subscribe to the Theology Mom podcast and add your review. You can also follow Krista at Theology Mom on Facebook and YouTube. Join Krista for more theology adventures on the All The Things Show, co-hosted with Monique Dusan. Thanks for listening. Thank you.